Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Larry Mishkin talking to you from Chicago. Uh, we've got a great show with us today. We've got a fantastic guest that I'm going to let our co-host Rob tell you about in a second. Uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, Grateful Dead, uh, Dead and Company's Playing in the Sand, uh, which is going to be coming up next winter. But uh, Jim Marty, our crack reporter on that kind of thing, already has news on it. And uh, seeing as how uh, 49 years ago, uh, the Grateful Dead launched uh, their Europe 72 tour. We thought that would be something great to talk about today. So we're all very excited. Uh, there's a lot of good things on the show today. Uh, first, let me say hey to uh, Jim Marty out in Colorado. Jim, how are you doing? Very good. Things are good in Colorado. And yeah, we're very excited about uh, playing in the sand next January. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I think I got my pre-sale tickets uh, this morning. At least I got a notification that I'm in the queue. So... Um, very excited about that. And uh, Rob has brought us a great guest today, so I'm going to turn it over to him right now and let him uh, talk about uh, our guest. Great. Hey, Rob, I'm coming to you guys from, um, from sunny Southern California. I've got a, a buddy of mine, Jerry Griffin, who's uh, going to be on the show with us, another San Diegan who's joining us. Uh, Jerry and I got to know each other a few years back. Uh, my former business partner and good buddy from law school, Brian Gillespie, had introduced us uh, years ago. And uh, as he and I were speaking, he said, hey, I see you've got this uh, Deadhead Canvas Show podcast. Yeah, you should have me on as a guest sometime. And I said, I didn't know you were a deadhead. And he said, yeah, of course I'm a deadhead. And I said, I should have put it together, you know, Denison College guy, and, you know, in, in the canvas industry. So Jerry's been working in and out of the space now for, I think, about four or five years. And I think before he came to it, he and I spoke about, you know, some different plans that he had when he was trying to think about a way to enter canvas. So it's great to have him on the show and great to, to watch the progression of what he's done in the space over the last couple of years. So... Jerry, great to have you, man. Welcome, uh, welcome to the Dead of Canvas show. Rob, thanks so much, and and Jim, Larry, thanks so much for having me. I do appreciate it. So, Jerry, uh, why don't you tell us about everything you've been doing in the space and you know what you're working on now? I know you're with a great company called Creo that's uh, doing some uh, biosynthetic cannabinoid work, uh, as well as some of the, the things you've been doing in the space over the last couple of years, and you know then maybe segue into uh, you know your experience as a as a deadhead. But we'd love to know more about you know what you're doing in in Canvas right now. Yeah, so um, I guess starting back in 2000, I moved to San Diego promptly after graduating college and not the least of the reasons being their lax attitude towards weed. Um, I spent a number of years learning about the business or learning about business in general at Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 type companies. And then I jumped into regulated cannabis uh, right around 2018, which was a few months before California went rec legal. I've done quite a few things in the space, but in short, I've pretty much seen it all. I've been up the hill in Soham and Mendo and Trinity. I've been to grows and labs all over the country. I've seen the packaging and hardware supply chain side of things, and I've even dabbled a little bit in retail. But uh, presently, I have managed to marry two passions of mine. Uh, one of which is the environment and another of which is cannabis science. Um, I am a passive founder in a sustainable packaging business that services the cannabis space. We are called Go Zero, and our goal is to fully remove high-velocity, one-time-use plastic from the industry. We just landed our first shipment of a million child-resistant joint tubes that can be turned into compost about 90 days after they're disposed of, and we have a certification called ASTM D6400 that supports that claim. So if you want to check that out, we are at gozeropackaging.com. 
my full-time job, um, when I'm not, uh, you know, directing traffic over at Go Zero, I lead business development for Creo Ingredients. And Creo is a producer of rare cannabinoids through what we call a precision fermentation process. We haven't proven this yet, but we believe the process uses far less water, land, and energy than traditional cultivation and extraction, especially, especially when it comes to the rarer and more powerful cannabinoids. So that is not at all to say that plant cultivation is necessarily bad for the environment, but when it comes to certain cannabinoids and the mass market potential for some of those cannabinoids, it can become very, very taxing on the environment to produce them from plants. So Creo will be going to market with CBGA and CBG shortly, and we'll build our portfolio out according to how the market develops for some of these other rare cannabinoids. And if you want to check out Creo, you can check it out at uh, creoingredients.com. That's C-R-E-O ingredients with an S.com. So um, that kind of brings you guys to present. But before I jump in, I have to say I've listened to you guys a lot and your guests have been incredible and the conversations have been amazing. And I don't nearly have the number of shows or depth of knowledge that uh, some of you have and, and some of your guests. I only saw the dead a few times before uh, Jerry passed in 95, but I started it out with a bang at NASA when I was 15. And I think that show was uh, April 2nd, 93. So I just passed the anniversary there. Um, but to give you a sense of how maniacal I am about the dead, my two daughters don't go to bed at night until I play them Terrapin from Swing Auditorium in 77. They call it um, wow. inspiration. And if I try to sub it in for another Terrapin from another show, they immediately made me, make me put it back to Swing 77. Um, they know Wharf Rat by heart. They call it blind and dirty. And it's, this isn't because I forced it upon them, but it's just because that's all they hear nonstop in the house, in the car. <laughs> yeah, so... Anyway, that's me. That brings you to kind of present. That's my connection to the dead. And I appreciate you all for having me. And do your daughters like fish too? They do, but my wife hates fish. So it doesn't quite get the, uh, get the play around the house that the, that the dead gets. I understand completely. They call fish dance party. Though. They say, hey, daddy, can you put on dance party? Because then we put, on, we put on the old videos and we all, the whole house gets into a, a full dance party. <laughs> sure. It's funny you bring up the Swing Auditorium uh, as a Terrapin, because that's the first Terrapin ever played. I think that's 226.77, if I remember correctly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. First Testament. Yeah, First Testament as well. So it's sometimes the first is the best, I guess, for you. But which Wharf Rats do they hold you to? It's a good question. I feel like it's such a, a, a static kind of song, and that they don't necessarily have much of a preference. And maybe I'm off base on that. But uh, for me, they, they just they like the tune. I used to sing them to bed with it every night, and that's how they know it by heart. Um, but every time it comes on, they, they pick it out immediately and start singing, singing the lyrics, singing the lyrics, excuse me. But, you know, Terrapin is a great tune like that. Uh, 226 happens to be my wife's birthday, so uh, I'm well familiar with that show as well. Uh, it is a great Terrapin. And my kids love Terrapin. When I, they'd play it, they'd dance around and call it turtle music. So they were very <laughs> happy with that, too. But, you know, over time, they got to know all of it. Now they're old enough, they're, they're true fish heads, and they, they run off to all the fish shows on their own. Uh, which is great. They have a great time doing it, uh, you know, and it's just nice because it kind of makes it generational. So from my perspective, you know, if, if your kids are already into it at a younger age, you know, you, you've got a, a long way to go. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm grooming them for sure. It is. Every age is a fun age. 
I've enjoyed every every year with our boys. So um, a little bit of business, um, and I don't I'm not asking to give away any trade secrets, but what is the um, the base material of these joint tubes that you can compost? Yeah, it's it's right in our marketing material: polylactic acid, uh, PBA, and some mineral fillers. Um, and it's not so much the materials that are you know proprietary. It's the engineering that goes into combining the form factor with the materials um, because, you know, they're not, you know, plastic gets a lot of use because it's really malleable and very easy to work with. Right. But of course, it's horrible for the environment. Um, so, you know, the real tech is in the, is in the engineering and the actual process of making the, the form factors. And what about things for grams and um, shatter and things like that, packaging for those type of cannabis products? Yeah. So, I, you know. From, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, our strategy, we really just want to make a statement with the joint tubes. And we, we aim to wholesale replace um, the, the supply chain uh, as it exists today for, for, with plastic tubes. Um, I know it's a lofty goal, but, you know, we've done the math on how much uh, single-use plastic goes into the environment as a result of those joint tubes. And it's mind-bending to think about and we feel very much like if we can replace that, right, and it starts with getting to an adoptability rate. So it starts with getting some velocity and getting some volume and then getting down to a price point that you really doesn't make any sense to buy plastic tubes anymore. If we can get to that point, then we feel like we can wholesale replace it. And we will effectively have removed something like 880 tons a year of plastic from the environment. And then we'll go from there. And we're not you know, confining ourselves to the cannabis space. Um, but there's a problem and we want to help address it. And we all come from cannabis and we all love the, 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 the sector and we love the people in it and we want to help there first. But, um, you know, certainly we tend to, we expect to expand outward into um, other sectors. Think, you know, cosmetics and beauty, you know, anywhere where there's these single use, really like high velocity plastic products that just get thrown away and are too small to be recycled. And do you have a market for the, uh, the the compost material on the back end? Yeah, I suppose, right? Um, it would depend on the compost facilities kind of market, right? And that's kind of part and parcel of our process. We need to um, line up who, um, which, which facilities uh, we like the best, because the best way to do this, instead of having folks try to compost it themselves or even go put it in the garden, is to have it fully returned to like a municipal facility who then you know puts it right back into um into growing plants or into the into soil to to grow new plants so that's part of the process that we're working through and kind of identifying who those partners in but effectively it becomes whoever their market is and whoever they sell to and whoever they sell that compost to ideally it's you know it's 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 customers that are you know um cannabis customers right and have there been any studies done on that type of compost to show like you know its effectiveness when it's when it when it's when it's derived from these types of plastics? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the uh, the ASTM D sixty four hundred certification um, part and parcel of that of that certification is to ensure that the compost uh, that comes out the other end uh, is uh, non toxic and will support the growth of plants or encourage the growth growth of plants. So they actually put the compost, uh, part of the process is growing plants in the compost and testing uh, those plants and also testing the, the soil for any toxicity. 
on the uh, Creo side, because I uh, find that fascinating as well. I know right before we hopped on, Jim had asked you uh, whether it was THC or uh, non-THC. And, you know, if you're if you're looking for cannabinoids, I guess it could be either. Um, uh, I noticed when you talk about CBGA and CBG, I assume in those instances, uh, we're talking about final products that don't have THC in them or perhaps, you know, not a whole lot. Um how does this, while you're doing this, are, are you actually going through the plant itself and discovering these rare cannabinoids within the cannabis plant and, and, and isolating them in a way that nobody else has been able to do? Uh, no. So um, if you think about uh, traditional fermentation and you think about, you know, most people think of beer or wine or, or, or spirits and, you know, you feed um, a yeast uh, sugar and it turns it into alcohol. Uh, very similar concept here. So we're taking a organism and we're feeding it a sugar and it's secreting out a cannabinoid. So um, these are organisms that are trained to do this. And so from the standpoint of, uh, that's why we call it fermentation, from the standpoint of like CBGA and CBG and why we've chosen those cannabinoids, all cannabinoids kind of um, trickle down from those two cannabinoids, really from CBGA. CBGA decarboxylates into CBGA, and then ultimately all the other cannabinoids downstream uh, come out downstream from that as the plant matures. And so we felt that that would be a great place to start in that we can start looking at different conversions uh, enzymatically or uh, through other means um, or uh, create um, ways, pathways to creating those cannabinoids directly, if that makes sense. Are they strain independent, meaning they're not necessarily based on any one particular type of flower you just kind of created as you go along? Yeah, no, it's so, so certainly there is uh, plant gene material that are inserted into uh, the organisms and, you know, that drives the metabolism of the, of the, the sugars into the ultimate, um, the cannabinoid. Um, so there's plant material certainly involved. What kind of uh, reaction or notice does the user get from these specially derived cannabinoids? So, you know, it's a great question. I am in the process right now of turning um, our cannabinoids into uh, different form factors to try out. So we are doing um, a micro emulsion to turn it into a basically a ready to drink beverage. Um, We are turning um, it into a vape and um, effectively some select vape few people like myself will get to try them out and see what um, they do. But in the absence of spending tons and tons of money to do efficacy studies or clinical trials, right? Um, And the science could be just an endless pit of testing after testing after testing. We felt like these are the right places to start. Anecdotally, I've been told that the, um, the vaping side of it, or even if you were to do a dab of some of these compounds, it's uh, been described as a few beers and sitting in a hot tub. So just a very relaxing, relaxing kind of effect. I've uh, been told on the drinks, on the drink side, uh, much of the same, but I'll let you know. Um, but that's the anecdotal kind of evidence. And then I can tell you also from my own personal experience with similar cannabinoids uh, that are from the plant, um, CBG definitely gives a sense of focus, uh, definitely gives a sense of um, mood enhancing. Um, I've described it to people where you have a really rough day and you come home and, you know, the kids are all over you and you just, you're, you have toler- your tolerance for everything is about zero and you can take one hit off this thing and you don't really feel high, but everything kind of melts away. All your anxiety kind of goes away and you just feel 
hundred times better and you can get through and, and, but that's just, you know, my own personal experience. Everybody's different. Yeah. I've gotten samples of CBG with a vape pen and, and I do think there is a slight high to it. It's very slight, but there is a, maybe it is what how you described it, a falling away of stress, but I, I do notice a, a slight lift. We here at the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show love samples, and we will uh, give great <laughs> reviews on air after we've uh, had an opportunity to subject it to our very rigorous uh, standards here. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, we've got the cannabinoids that we make through our own process. We've got cannabinoids that uh, we supply through who we believe are the best and brightest uh, across the country. And we've worked on some functional formulations that kind of combine different cannabinoids to um promote a certain uh outcome and so i will get you all samples of those as well it's pretty exciting stuff it's stuff we're doing with things like thcv uh cbc cbg uh cbga uh cbd a uh, and a few others um so i'll be sure to get you all samples of all of that uh, to, to give a shot to give a try to it's great what about um delta eight and delta nine how do they tie in um, you know, Delta 8 and Delta 9, we steer clear of, you know, it's uh, from a regulatory perspective. Um, our target customer uh, is, um, I guess, long term big consumer packaged goods, those that have like a serious aversion to the THC side of things. Um, and so, you know, Delta High or, or excuse me, Delta High, Delta 9, Delta 8. Um, we just steer clear to those. Um, you know, they are heavily regulated. Delta eight is not regulated presently, but I think kind of that's just a matter of time. So we tend to steer clear of those. I'm, you know, very well versed on all of those, but tend to kind of, you know, as a company, we tend to steer, steer clear of those. Um, THCV, um, folks kind of pause at that one. It's got a very unfortunate name, but um, very different than, than, than those two molecules, the, the D8 and the D9. So, Terry, as you know, I spent a fair amount of time in the biopharmaceutical side of the industry as well. And, uh, you know, knowing the competition out there and some of the other companies, you guys are sort of racing to uh, get first past the post on the, uh, the IP that's related to a lot of this stuff. You know, the trace cannabinoids seem to be the most exciting because they're the cannabinoids that don't express themselves in large enough quantities in the plant for extraction purposes. As you guys are thinking about where to focus, you know, what do you think the next cannabinoid is that's going to be really exciting? And then are you also looking at um, new formulations or adding a carbon chain uh, to a molecule to make sure that, you know, it's something that's never been invented before or the plant doesn't produce in nature? Are you thinking about, you know, developing new cannabinoids that are still going to bind to the CB1 or CB2 receptor? Yeah, so I think that um, from my perspective, um, you know, CBD and CB and 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 THC are kind of tip of the iceberg, right? I think that the 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 next man up, so to speak, is CBN or CBG, right? Um, you can interchange those depending upon who you're asking. Um, I'd probably argue the CBN market's a little bigger because there's a lot of finished product out there out there uh, already, kind of latching onto the the the, the, the potential for sedation and sleep. So those would be the four that you know have the largest market potential presently. Um, THCV, I think, has the largest mass market potential. There's a lot of indications that uh, say that it's got a mood and uh, excuse me, a um, appetite suppressing type of functionality or a, a outcome, a, a weight loss type of type of uh, um, outcome, a uh, hyper focus, uh, meaning like a energy uplifting type of uh, outcome. And I think there's a lot of mass market potential for that and a lot of different form factors. I was going to say, I, th I think THCV is the, 
is the molecule people are watching very closely because of the weight loss and the uh, appetite suppression. That if you think about you know yep. from a mass market appeal, uh, the only thing about THCV, if you're not making it into lab, it's obviously only expresses itself in sub-Saharan strains of uh, of cannabis. So it's you know your Durban poisons and your other land race strains coming from sub-Saharan Africa, which makes it really really limited as far as you know where you can actually extract it. So you know. For you guys, I, I think that going after something that's already you know rare enough in nature, but you can be producing in kilogram quantities in the lab, would be relatively exciting. If you think this can be you know the new weight loss weight loss supplement that you can put across at every GNC and vitamin shop. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and it just I think needs to come down in price to get to like a, a market rate that I guess is more adoptable, and also from a from a dosing perspective, it's very touchy. Uh, we hear anecdotally and we've seen, you know, research to say that you can overdo it really quick and you can get really uncomfortable really quick. So it's not um, like, you know, CBG or CBD or, you know, even THC, a little too much, you know, is not going to be necessarily harmful and, and you know, it, it'll, you'll feel just fine um, after a little while. THCV can get really, really intense in a not positive way. So we have to be very careful, but the mass mass market potential is definitely there. You're exactly right. Um, and to answer your other question about um, creating, I guess, what we would describe as novel cannabinoids. These are cannabinoids that have, uh, like you said, an, an additional like tail on them, so to speak, right? That make them um, more unique, but very similar in structure to existing cannabinoids. Um, certainly something we're looking at. Um, that's pretty much as far uh, as I can take that conversation. It, it, right. Is, is the idea with that though? I mean, are the, some of the stuff you're creating d doesn't otherwise exist, does it? I mean, how, how, how does it get placed on uh, or analyzed, you know, whether or not it should be on the controlled substances act, for instance, I mean, what are the factors that they're looking at and how do you create something that, you know, if it's not coming directly from a plant itself and the, and the, you know, you're, you're, you're creating it through fermentation, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, what ultimately, you know, what the government would think of it. Hopefully, not very much. So you can go and do whatever you want to do with it, but you know, there's no guarantees about that. Yeah, and I think that's the argument, right? I think from the standpoint of, um, you know, THC exists, but THC with a tail maybe doesn't exist, right? And now you've created basically the same cannabinoid um, with all the wellness value that it has and all the health value that it has. But now you've got it patented, right? And you've got IP and nobody else can use that product without, you know, your consent or your licensing or whatever the case may be. Um, and then, of course, from a regulatory perspective, right, you tend to kind of transcend the regulatory environment a little bit. Um, you know, nobody's to say that they won't step in and say, you know, that you can't do that or whatever the case may be. But, yeah, those would all be kind of the arguments in favor of doing something like that. And, Rob, I'm sure you have some more to add on that, but that's kind of my view. Yeah, I mean, whatever I add is, is sort of the same where you are, which is that at a certain point it starts getting very, very technical and also starts getting into the, uh, the internal dynamics of the businesses that are actually doing this work. And each of them are going at this from a slightly different perspective because they've all got bottlenecks uh, against other people's IP, as you well know. So at a certain point, you know, you have to be very careful about protecting methodology and, you know, where your process patents are uh, in, in the process. But, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, either bioindustrial cannabinoids or, or biosynthetic or bioidentical cannabinoids are going to be the future uh, for anything that's not flour or combustible, you know, anything for a vape pen, anything for edibles, you know, pretty much any product you can think of that doesn't require flour as being the base element, I think ultimately would be driven by what's coming out of the lab and, you know, the whole necessity of having these massive, massive cultivation facilities to service the industry 
I think is largely muted in probably no less than five years. And uh, it's something that's probably more disruptive than anything else the market has ever seen. So, you know, like it or not, it's coming. Well, Jerry, let me ask you this question really fast, because yeah. I understand that, you know, as you develop these things, IP beca- becomes very, very important and, and something mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what you have. You have to protect it. If you have a whole bunch of different companies, you know, working in this field, trying to make their way through and each one of them, you know, you get a patent on this, they get a patent on that. Does it ultimately work against the overall development because so many people hold so many different little pieces? Uh, is, is there an idea that maybe at some point people all kind of come together and say, we're all going to license everything to see what we can do with all of these ideas? Yeah. And, and you've, you've clearly, you know, you're the legal mind on the call and I won't even pretend to know anywhere near as much about it as you do, but I'll put it this way. The IP landscape is very, very critical piece of our positioning in the market. And, you know, we took a very, very uh, in-depth look of everything out there before we even did any science whatsoever. Right. And so there's certainly a thicket of IP out there that people are treading upon, um, but there's no money quite yet. And it hasn't become too important to anybody, but it will. And, you know, we believe that we're positioned to kind of sidestep all of that with, you know, just that we've done our due diligence on the front end before we even did any science. I think I answered your question, but um, but yeah, I think your point was was that there's going to be a lot of IP that's going to be kind of intersecting one another in the future. And, and we're very cognizant of that, and very much operating in a way that we're going to steer clear of all of that and to the best of our ability. So Jerry, I know you got a hard stop uh, at a certain point. So if there's a time you need to duck off, you know, we'll thank you in advance for joining us, but stay on this conversation as long as you'd like, as we start transitioning over to talk about, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead and what's happening in Grateful Dead world. But, uh, you know, as long as you can stay, we'd love to have you. Yeah, I'm so bummed I got to go. I appreciate you guys. I'll stick around for a couple more minutes. Well, before you go, let's make sure we get your uh, contact information, your website. Yeah, where do people go to reach you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Jerry Griffin. Um, I can be reached at uh, jerry.griffin at creoingredients with an S.com. That's C R E O ingredients.com with an S. And I also can be reached, our websites rather, are www.creoingredients.com and also www.gozeropackaging.com. Transitioning over, as Larry alluded to earlier, um, today officially is the 49th anniversary of the first show of Europe 72. So for all those out there that, uh, that know the run, it was 22 nights that were uh, set across you know, almost about a month and a half in Europe. Um, lots of, uh, of, of England shows, lots of shows that you know, really um, are still celebrated today. I think 100 Years Hall is still considered one of the all-time great shows. Some of the Lyceum shows were fantastic, Copenhagen. You know, there was just so much that was happening at that time that was, uh, you know, kind of the last days of Pig. Uh, it was also, you know, when, when Billy was still the only um, the only drummer at the time. But it was just a, a terrific time, and it was really memorialized by the fact that there was, you know, a triple album put out soon afterwards, which actually became one of the most successful albums for The Grateful Dead with, you know, six sides and, you know, almost you know, no repeated tracks across, uh, across you know, 100-plus songs. So it's uh, amazing to think that, you know, the longevity and how much people are still talking about this run today. And I don't think the Grateful Dead ever went back to Europe for a run anything close to that. They, they did the fall of 1990 run, which I think was, you know, 12 or 14 dates, but nothing like a 22-night run um, after 72. 
So we thought it'd be fun to uh, to address that one. Now, Jim and Larry, if you guys have any thoughts about what that run you know looked like and what it means today, uh, sure. I'd love to hear it. Well, I have to say that Europe 72 is, is probably one of my favorite dead tours. I am one of the guys that went out and spent the big money and bought the box set, and I have the entire tour. And uh, when my wife lets me, I typically this time of year will play each show on the night that it actually ran. Uh, some of them tend to sound alike, so after a few nights, people are maybe looking for a little more variety. Uh, but overall, uh, to me, the significance of it is, is that, number one, uh, you know, the dead proved they were more than just, you know, a local American uh, fad. You know, they had they had solid fans around the world and especially in Europe, which, you know, I mean, was already exposed to some of the greatest rock and roll acts of all time. And yet, you know, they sold out everywhere they went for the most part. They had big crowds. It was a, uh, uh, you know, very successful tour for them. But I think it gave them a chance not just to... to uh, to tour together and really coalesce as a group, especially with Mickey out and just the five of them. But one of the great things about this tour and that you can do if you have the box set is you can start listening to some of these songs that they played on the very first night. And then you can listen to them as they play them over the course of the tour, playing in the band. Uh, Greatest story ever told a lot of Bobby songs really getting worked out on this tour so that by the end uh, the last few nights you're hearing them and they sound completely different than they did at the opening of the tour, in fact, sound a lot more like the versions we were used to uh, that we came into in later years. Um, I think they're all tremendous shows. I think you're right, Rob, the 100-Year Hall, they had released that separately, not the full show, but they had released a lot of it uh, separately. Um, they were released periodically, a few other bits and pieces of it. Um, uh, my favorite on the whole thing is, oh, well, they did actually release, I think, a, a three or four disc set just of uh, pullouts from the London shows. Uh, I seem to recall that they released that. Uh, of these sh- of the tour, though, um, interestingly enough, my favorite show is uh, the one that they played uh, in May at the Lille Fairgrounds in Lille, France. And uh, my wife has a French cousin who knew somebody who was at the show, and all they ever talked about was this show. And 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 the set list is compared to all the other nights is fairly standard, but it's it's just it's an excellent show. It, it's great energy. And, and one of the best things about the uh, the box set is you get the little story, not just the, the big book, but each show in the in the disc has its own little outline. You know, somebody came in and wrote four or five pages of that show and what the circumstances were and what got, you know, what was going on. And the Lil' France show was a great show. There was problems with their equipment and some other stuff, and they pulled it all together and played this amazing show, which I think was kind of typical for the tour. That was the Olympia Theater show. I had a couple of uh, stories of read or heard over the years that uh, in the Paris show, uh, at set break, the audience started to get up and leave. They thought it was over. They didn't realize it was two sets, and somebody had to go out on the stage and shout from the stage in, in French to sit the heck down. There's a second set. So, and then another story I heard um, that financially, although you know they had good crowds, the expense of the tour was tremendous, and they really didn't make... A lot of money on the tour itself and it was the album that really bailed out that tour so that's a couple little insights that i've heard over the years um the other fun little uh, tidbit of information is that uh elvis costello a noted grateful dead fan talks about how he saw the dead for the first time in 72 at the bickershaw festival which was a, a show in england that they just kind of threw in in the middle of everything they were in the continent they came over just to play this show as part of this festival but the story behind it is it was a rainy day and the fields were all muddy. And yet, you know, uh, a, a young Elvis Costello, you know, found his way out there and, and braved the elements and was really turned on to the dead and to their style of music. And, uh, you know, 
who knows what impact uh, that may have had on his future music that uh, those of us who follow him have come to know and love. Yes, there's actually a picture uh, of him. And he's like in the third or fourth row. It's an outdoor show. Like you said, it's a rainy day. And he circled, Elvis Costello circled and said, that's in, over the side, he writes, that's me. I forget where I saw that picture. Sure. So a couple things from, uh, from that tour. I mean, one, the box that you refer to, Larry, I don't think people, you know, that unless they order it, there's only 7,200 um, copies of it produced. And I think it's sold out in four days. Uh, and it came in, I think, in what, 73 discs in a steamer trunk. Is that right? Like just 70, a, yeah, 70 plus, and, and it's shaped like a, a small steamer truck. They've got all the discs in there, and then they've got a coffee table book and pictures, you know, and which which is all good, and I love that stuff too. Um, but yeah, it, it, it looks kind of cool. It's like one of those things you can set out, and people, you know, walk up and they, it's got travel stickers on the outside of it, and they 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 printed a a little special sticker with your name that they they put on there as well. <laughs> So the other thing I was going to mention is, this is a cool one for me personally, is I was born on April 30th, 1972, uh, which technically is not a night they played, but because of the time change, I was born early in the morning in New York uh, on April 30th, 72, which would technically make it, you know, still 429, 72, you know, Europe. So I was trying to, trying to, you know, gauge the data whether or not the time change worked in my favor. And unfortunately, I don't don't think it does because it would have been uh, you know, a, a bit earlier uh, East Coast time. But I just missed having a Grateful Dead show on my birthday. And I was hoping, you know, had it been the other way, that I would have been on there. So technically that first night of Paris, France on May 3rd would have been the first Grateful Dead show of, of my lifetime. And I missed, I missed uh, having one on my birthday by one day um, from, from well, Munich. Well, Rob, I just want to say that just ages you because I can't speak for Jim Marty, but certainly when I was born, although Jerry and... Uh, Rob Hunter may have already been met up and playing in Menlo Park and other places, you know, uh, along the Bay Area. Uh, even the Warlocks were still your, a few years off. Yeah. And, and the other thing about that tour, too, is we forget. I mean, those guys were, like, in their mid-20s, you know. Like, Kreutzmann celebrated his 26th birthday on that tour. You know, most of the, the, the whole band was probably between age, like, 24 and 27, running around Europe for two months. You know, that must have been such a blast at that age in their lives when they spent the majority of their time you know, cruise around the United States and mostly in the Bay Area to, you know, go over there and experience as a band. Two months in Europe uh, where, like, you know, they're still a few years behind we were with kind of the hippie uh, days and what was happening as far as experimentation, that uh, it must have been, you know, a complete shock to uh, the, the very um, conservative sensibilities of some of those countries. Uh, I just heard a fantastic uh, episode on the Big Steve Hour recently. Uh, where he talked about Europe 72 and he talked about the tour and, and, and how great it was for all of them. And that's exactly what he said, that, you know, here were guys, you know, who grew up in the Bronx or wherever, and they had seen the United States traveling with the Grateful Dead, but now they were finally getting a chance to go out and see the world. And one of the things that Big Steve talked about was the uh, significant role that psychedelics played uh, throughout the tour, on during the shows and even on the off days. And, uh, you know, how much fun it was. And, and, and um, there's pictures of them. They, they went around and they used to wear these clown hats on their heads as well. Um, and, and they... they I'm, the I'm bolos spaced. and the bozos. Right, the bolos and the bozos, exactly. And, and, you know, and you see that and you're like, can you imagine? You know, I, I can only imagine if when I was 26, you know, all of my good buddies who I was going to see the dead with, somebody turned us loose in Europe for, you know, a month and a half and said, here you go, have your, you know, have some fun. It, it, it's, it's incredible. Um and yet they, you know, most nights, at least almost every night of that tour, they showed up and they played and they played great stuff. It's, uh, you know, you, 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 
And it wasn't like, just the band. They brought along a huge entourage of the Grateful Dead family. Like, everyone like, went on that tour. They brought, like, 50-plus people with them. Whereas, you know, two full buses all the time, you know, like, yep. like school buses, not touring buses, of people that were going from town to town, where, you know, the entire Grateful Dead extended Grateful Dead family was on that tour. Which, when you think about the absurdity of what that must have been like with, you know, the psychedelics and the partying that was happening... You know, that, that's like Festival Express, you know, a, a magnified of what it would be like just cruising around like that, where it's not just, you know, you and, and the bandmates, but it's everyone, kids, you know, wives, friends, everybody being on the thing, just going from, from town to town and taking in the sights and on the off nights, you know, by all accounts, it was really, let's get to see Europe, let's get to see, you know, some of the great stuff that, uh, you know, th- here's our chance. Yeah, I think I listened to that same Big Steve hour where at the time um Alzi was in jail at the time of that tour right and so somebody else in the crew whipped up a batch of lsd based on stanley's recipe but it ended yep. up being five or ten times stronger than anything they had and that's what they brought to europe right. and it was only when they got back to the america the united states did they realize how strong the lsd they brought to europe was but yep. you know there is film i've seen and I, I forget where i see some of this stuff it's been a lot of years but there's a film of a uh, when they land in London, they go to a party put on by Warner Brothers. And Sam Cutler is the tour manager on that tour. And he um, is going over how to convert dollars into pounds for the <laughs> European leg of that. And Jerry picked up the math right away. And uh, sure. anyway, yes, yeah, look for that film. It's, it's some really cool uh, backstage film of that. I've had all that sure. stuff at one time. I don't know if I still do. But... Um, Yep, loved Europe '72. Listened to it many, many times all night long. So. Yep, and so one other good story that comes out of Europe '72 that I also picked up recently, listening to our good friend Big Steve on this show. On previous episodes, we've talked about Jerry's guitars. Uh, when we had Jay Blakesburg on, he told us some interesting stories about Wolf and how he facilitated uh, uh, um, uh, John Mayer's opportunity to play it at uh, City Field a few years ago. And uh, it's just one of those things. Uh, we talked about the uh, the exhibit at the uh, uh, MoMA in New York when they had all the rock and roll guitars there and everything and had a chance to go and see Wolf and all of them. But what Steve said about Wolf was that when Wolf was originally, when the guitar was originally built um, by Doug, and I always forget his last name, I'm sorry. Irwin. Irwin, thank you. There was nothing on the bottom. Uh, and in fact, when they went to Europe for Europe 72, they saw a sticker of the Wolf. And they purchased it, and the original wolf on the bottom of the guitar was a sticker. And the reason they did that is because this wolf is a wolf that was originally designed by a cartoonist named Tex Avery, who's famous for Bugs Bunny and things like that. And one of his regular repeating themes was a wolf who would stand by a lamppost on the corner of Hollywood and Vine and give a really exaggerated wolf whistle when pretty women walked by. So uh, they they had a copyright on it. So they couldn't sell the stickers or any images of it in the United States. But in Europe, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, copyright laws didn't apply. Uh, so they sold stickers with these types of things. And they saw it. They bought it. They slapped it on the sticker. But when they got back to the States and Doug Irwin saw it, he took the guitar back from Jerry, took the sticker off, and recreated it with inlay on the bottom of this guitar that's that's absolutely beautiful uh, and amazing. But I, I, I always just assumed um, uh, that Doug had had... had manufactured the guitar that way originally. Uh, and it wasn't until Big Steve you know, kind of clued me in, uh, but it was you know just funny to hear one more little story uh, you know, that rolled off as a result of uh, you know, Europe 72. And the other place to get good information, uh, if you ever read Rock Scully's book, 
uh, Living with the Dead, which was one of the first tell-all book that I don't think the band was too happy about by all accounts. Uh, Scully's got some really, really funny stories that uh, that go back to um, that whole tour and go back to you know their their manager at the time and some of the uh, the deals that were happening behind the scenes. But uh, if you haven't read that book, Living with the Dead, it's a, it's a lot of fun. If nothing else, just as an adventure of what it was like, you know, running around on the road with those guys. Sure. No, but it, but you know, look at the end of the day, there aren't a lot of bands in the world, you know, outside of you know the Dead and Fish, maybe the Rolling Stones, maybe the Who, where people talk about oh the Rolling Stones tour of 1981, you know, their their uh, or there's some girls tour of 1978, and yeah, that, you know, but 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 to me that's always just more of it being like this huge, what we now call a social media event, but back then it was just a huge event and the Stones were in the United States and there was always something going on around them or whatever. But, you know, when we talk about tours with the dead and with fish, they actually mean something. And we've had conversations like this before and we've talked about some of our favorite tours. But but what makes Europe 72 so amazing for me is it, it may very well be the best-known tour of any band that's ever played, Every, you know, anyone who knows the Grateful Dead knows Europe 72 and people who don't know the dead very well know Europe 72 just because of the exposure that it's had and the number of sales and the uh, play that it gets on radio stations still to this day. Um, and I and I love that, that, you know, that uh, the conversation about the band goes so deep that that, you know, there's time to focus on an entire tour and the impact that that tour had on the band and and you know we, we've talked about the transition that they were making from you know their primal rocks phase through American Beauty and Working Man's Dead and one of the things that we keep trying to get to and we'll get to one of these days is Skull and Rose's 50th anniversary and that was kind of the precursor to Europe 72 as a live album that was actually songs not just you know the long dead improvised jams and I think Europe 72 took Skull and Roses and just expanded it you know to a point where it was hard to deny that the Grateful Dead were now a true rock and roll band, uh, you know, with a with a strong working catalog of songs uh, that that were not necessarily geared towards uh, you know long mind bending jams that required you know psychedelic substances to really appreciate, although they didn't hurt. Very good. Well, we're coming to the end of our time slot, so I want to um, talk a little bit about playing in the sand. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, tickets. Went on sale. The pre-sale was today. I'm pretty sure I got my, uh, I'm in the queue, as they said on my computer screen, uh, January 13th through 16th, 2022. And um, it'll be um, right on the beach. There's a great um, video that's out there of the show uh, from 2020. Yeah, the January 2020, right before the COVID shutdown, they, they squeezed it in. And uh, John Mayer plays great, and you can, you know, you can see the hotel and the beach. So if you want to get psyched up for playing in the sand, check out the uh, video from the 2020 playing in the sand. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, look, what's what's not to like? The Grateful Dead, sand, warm weather, the middle of winter. Sounds like a win. Yeah, I was just there, not with the obviously not with Dead and Company, but I was there on a family vacation. Uh, just a few weeks ago, or a couple months ago now in January, and what's a very interesting part of Mexico, uh, they were telling me 30 years ago there wasn't hardly even electricity there, and today the, the beach of Playa del Carmen is just lined with 500-room hotel after 500-room hotel where you walk out of your room and you walk right down to the Caribbean Sea. 
Beautiful. Okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Before we go, guys, we should probably talk about what we're going to uh, have next week. I'm super fired up about next week's guest. We've got Andy Bernstein from Headcount coming to join us. Uh, you know, huge deadhead. Obviously, been working with the band for years. He actually has a, a cannabis voter initiative that he's put out over the last year. Uh, Headcount's entire mantra is, you know, getting people signed up to vote, and they do it by going to shows and making sure there's tables at every venue and making sure that uh, they get as many people that are unregistered voters to become registered voters. So it's had the, the support of the entire jam band community for years. Uh, I got to know Andy and his team back when I was coordinating uh, the areas for a lot of the bigger festivals, and I was their point of contact on the ground to a lot of these uh, festivals. And I always had just a tremendous amount of respect for what that organization did. So to have Andy on with us, you know, we're Bob Weir is one of his uh, board of directors and, you know, other people in the, uh, in, in the band as well as, you know, all sorts of other bands, Humphreys McGee and Moe and uh, you name it, have all, you know, taken uh, very proactive roles with, uh, with Headcount. So it would be terrific to have him on. And I think we're also going to talk a little bit next week about, um, you know, other sides of the Grateful Dead and maybe discuss some of the side projects we've done. And one of the ones I think we were talking about doing was uh, discussing what Garcia did with uh, Reconstruction. And, uh, you know, kind of the funkier side of, of the Garcia band when it was, you know, being done either through uh, Reconstruction or Legion of Mary. But Reconstruction in 79, really exploring the funk side and the musicians that he played with. There were more session musicians out of San Francisco and some of the, the shows they played, I think, in, in mid-April of 1979. So that's what's on tap for next week. We, uh, we hope you guys will join us again next week for another great show. And, you know, great show today, guys, discussing Europe 72 and uh, having Jerry Griffin on with us. Great. I look forward to next week. I've seen the headcount people set up many times at Red Rocks. Yep, I think it's going to be, uh, that will be a great show. Uh, nobody can argue that it's a very timely uh, and an important conversation to have, and I'm glad that uh, he'll be able to give us a little bit of his time. Uh, always exciting things to be talking about as far as the debt are concerned. Uh, I do have a couple of Legion of Mary albums and love listening to Legion of Mary. They've released some of that live stuff now, too, through uh, Garcia's family provisions and stuff, and uh it's great music. That'll be a great conversation. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you again to our guest, Jerry Griffin, for being with us today. Uh, we will look forward to talking to everybody next week. And until then, this is Larry Mishkin saying thank you and uh, be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.